Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. If you are under the age of, say, 60, maybe, you probably grew up noticing lots of initiatives to improve educational and professional opportunities for women. With the rise of second wave feminism in the 70s and 80s came a massive effort to get more girls into college and from there even out the achievement gap between men and women. The effort was a success, to put it mildly. As we've talked about a lot on this show, women are outpacing men across any number of metrics, notably educational attainment, but also in terms of income, health, and overall well-being. My guest, Richard Reeves, has written a book that explores how we got to this point. It's called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard has been making the media rounds lately, including doing a lot of podcasts like this one. But I have to say, we cover a lot of new ground here. So even if you've heard him interviewed before, I think you'll appreciate this conversation. We talk about why it's so hard to even talk about this stuff without being written off as a, some kind of men's rights activist. We talk about what he learned from raising three boys himself and ask whether Gen Xers actually grew up in a kind of sexual revolution sweet spot, post-equal rights, but pre-dating apps and hookup culture. It's a great conversation. So here's my talk with Richard Reeves. Richard Reeves, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. Your book of boys and men has been extremely well-received. You've been making the rounds, lots of media, both legacy media, as well as the heterodox space that this podcast occupies. This is a subject that has interested me for a very long time. And in listening to you talk on all these interviews, I am noticing something. And that is that you are saying things that a number of us have been saying or trying to say for the last several years now, but we've been written off as like apologists for men's rights or shills for the patriarchy or, or whatever. You, however, are getting a fair hearing. It, it seems like we're at a moment where people are really ready to hear the message of this book. So I thought I would start by asking you why you think that is. Is it finally okay to say that men are in trouble? That's a, gr that's a great question. Um, thank you for that kind introduction. Um, and and I, I, know I should say that I think to some extent, there's a division of labor here. Like, a, you know, the, the ground has to be prepared for this this kind of work. And I do, you know, refer to, you know, previous books that have been written on this on these issues, including The End of Man by Hannah Rosen and, you know, Warren Farrell and John Gray's book, The Boy Crisis, and so on. So there, it's not as if I'm not exactly the first person to enter into this space, but I think to some extent, there did need to be some some, some groundswell in, in favor of it. But I think two things. One is, I do. I, I, I think I've successfully managed to frame the argument in a way that, it, that allows people into the conversation. Okay. There's a safe space. It's not, you don't have to abandon your prior commitments at the door to come into this. And uh, that, so that was part of my, my goal with the book. But I think mainly it's just, it's mainly what you've just said, Megan, which is like these trends are not going away. Many of these issues are, if anything, getting worse for boys and men. And I would also say I think that we've seen some of those, the issues that boys and men are facing curdling in some quite you know, difficult ways in the manosphere online and in some of the populist politics we see. And so there's a sort of sense of like, okay, we really, it's, we can't just leave this stuff alone. A, it's not getting better on its own. And B, these problems left to fester are not going to end well for anybody on lots of fronts. And so to some extent, I think it's been part of a more general kind of waking up to some of the problems that perhaps polite society didn't like to engage with. And so to that extent, it could just be a matter of like, as you said, like a fine, you know, just, okay, we, we this has been going on for a while now. We, we, we probably need to say this seriously. Is this a subject that you've been thinking about for a long time? Or are you sort of surprised that you've taken this on? I have been thinking about it for a, a very long time and actually back in the, my days when I was in the UK doing you know, policy work over there and some politics, I was actually writing about how we needed to get more gender equal on the home front around childcare and paid leave and so on if we were to get further along in terms of gender equality at work. I was doing that probably 20 years ago. I would say that for me though, there's been a bit of a journey from what you'd see as probably more of a sort of classically feminist approach 
um, you know, seeing seeing the problem as the rob men as kind of failing to modernize quickly enough <laughs> and get with the program, if you like. Um, and and I really I come to see that some of the problems facing boys and men are kind of just really structural in nature, and that they are problems that they are facing specifically. It's not just that they're sort of just uh, you know, it's not the pro- our problem is not that men aren't good enough feminists. Um, <laughs> really? Oh, impossible! That's <laughs> yeah. the answer to everything. Yeah, the but that is sort of, of the view and, uh, on the left. Is it, and and when you do get pieces, uh, Jessica Valenti had a piece in the Times a few years back where she basically said, we need to worry about boys and men. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And basically, the piece was because if we don't, they won't grow up to be good enough feminists. Ah, uh, Jessica Valenti. That's that's a subject for an entire other. Episode. I've raised <laughs> three boys, and I got to tell you that that's not the only goal. I need them to be good men as well, because they are definitely male. Um, and so I do. I've come to I think take a probably a, a slightly more balanced view than I kind of previously did in some of my own views. But but I would also say that at no point along the way have I lost some of the basic egalitarian impulses that I've always had. It's just that I think I'm applying them in both directions now. Yeah, I think you're pretty clear about that. That's one of the great strengths of the book. You don't you never allow yourself to veer into dogma or extended rants, which it it would be hard for me. So, you know, I'm one of those It was hard for me too. Trust me, it was hard for me too. But this is not <laughs> yeah. this is not a subject that needs rants and polemics, honestly. No, I mean, and there's been plenty of that. So, I'm one of these Gen X feminists. And I still actually, I I identify myself as a feminist. I will not throw that word out, but I've been somebody who's been critical of like third and fourth wave feminism, however defined for a long time and trying to make the case that the culture has been essentially feminized, you know, because of a whole bunch of factors, including things like this kind of stuff we hear a lot, manufacturing jobs going away, just the values of of education and higher education, what's necessary, things like sitting still in class, focusing, those are qualities that tend to be more present in girls from a younger age. And so we have a sort of structural, we, we have a, a system that, that favors girls and puts boys at a disadvantage, generally speaking, of course. That goes without saying that there are exceptions to, to all of this. But I thought it was interesting the way you you really get into the way boys' brains develop differently. And I know you're not you're not a, coming at this like from a as a biologist or as a scientist or anything like that. But no. tell us what we know just about the the way boys' brains take shape. Yeah, and I would just say and in response to your earlier comments that I think when we're looking at how, you know, how a, a system or a structure or a culture might become you know, more feminine or more masculine or at different points, so we, have to be, we have to be quite careful which one we're talking about. So I think we can probably think of some parts of our economy now that are very definitely not feminized. And it's really hard to argue that Congress has been feminized when it's still three quarters male. And I think a lot of people would argue that it still has, you know, a quotes kind of male culture. So, but education, I think is pretty clear that, that it has become much more feminized just empirically. Like the teaching professions become progressively more female over time. Only 24% of teachers in K-12 level are male now uh, and dropping. Um, and obviously educational success has become much more strongly associated with, 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 with being, but you know, girls and women are basically, you know, leaving, boys and men in the dust at pretty much every level. So so you can, and I agree with you about the sort of skills that are rewarded and incentivized in the education system on average being more associated with girls than boys. And one of the ways it does that is by not recognizing the fact that girls do develop earlier than boys, uh, that they their brains just, they develop earlier. I mean, so for all of the heat there is around the whole male-female brain thing among adults, what sort of quietly completely uncontroversial is the timing of brain development. And that has not been recognized because I feel like it's so obvious. We certainly have been talking for a long time, girls, they hit puberty sooner. So has that topic sort of eclipsed this brain side of things? It's it's so interesting that it's like, it's sort of been recognized and not recognized in the sense that like, like everybody looks at it, knows it, right? So there's a whole area of neuroscience that just looks at, you know, recognizes these differences by, by sex. And it's also just like every person knows it. So one of my most feminist and most liberal colleagues who read the book, um, you know, her comment on the chapter, on the, on the bit where I kind of said, you know, on average girls' brains develop more early, especially 
around the prefrontal cortex, which is the bit that makes you turn your homework in um, and sit still and all the stuff you just wrote. She, she wrote, actually, the comment was, well, duh. I have, a, I have a son and a daughter. And I was like, well, that's great. Like, it is, well, duh. Thanks for spending pages and you know whatever telling me something that everybody who's ever lived knows. But the point is that, okay, so if it's such an obvious fact that girls are at this developmental advantage, why is that ignored when it comes to education policy? Why is that literally not acknowledged at all? So there's this gap between the recognition of the fact and the application of the fact in how we think about the structure and timing of the education system. And I think it's because this great overtaking of girls and women by boys and men has happened so quickly and so recently. There's just a bunch of people that are just not willing or able yet to get their head around the fact that we just need to look at we need to look at the education system as just not very male friendly and we need to reform it as such because because for a lot of these people it feels like literally yesterday that we were fighting to get more women into college and i get that right it is so it's it's really difficult to update your priors that quickly but in the meantime we continue to to just fail millions of boys yeah and i remember the conventional line was always well boys get called on more often in class the teachers are much more able to they're just much more likely to focus their attention on on boys okay now this was my anecdotal observation so i was in school i was you know elementary school in like the late 70s into the 80s exactly okay and it seems like if the boys were being called on it was because Either they were being disruptive and interrupting, or the teacher was so happy that any boy was raising his hand and saying anything that she would call on him. You know, that thing, it's like, well, you know, you good little girl in the back, anyone other than her, that, that, that girl has had her hand raised every single time. Anybody else? Anybody? Any, any boy? Please, please, please. Yeah, Beulah. That was Beulah. exactly. Like Beulah. 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 Yeah, that was the <laughs> dynamic, but nobody ever seemed to acknowledge it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, that's why you have to be very careful with that kind of data, of course, because even if it's true, you have to kind of look at why that's true. And and I think that like even back in the day when we couldn't see the structural advantage that girls had because because they were discouraged from going on to college and succeeding. I mean, I, you know, I think the the structural advantages that girls had in education were basically camouflaged before by by sexism. But but I think it's always been an issue to kind of get boys to remain more engaged in these kind of more classroom, sit-still uh, environments. And so it may well have been that the teachers were recognizing that. And it was, a, it was an attempt to keep the boys more engaged in an environment where that was difficult for them. But you can easily see stats like that and go, well, there you go, you know, sexism. And interestingly, rather than it being in a sense almost the opposite of that, and interesting when I talk to my boys about kind of going through school, I mean, I think actually – Teachers don't necessarily feel that they're much more conscious of that now. They they don't if they if they're calling on students, they're really they're very conscious about trying to be more inclusive about that and letting the students to be more. And actually, the result of you know the result was my boys said that you know, they have whole classes where none of the boys ever speak. It's just it's just the teacher and the, it's just the teacher and the girls, you know, and the boys just sit there and they and even if they disagree, they sometimes don't speak up, but they just don't like. The, so I think this the the. If you go into many classrooms today, the idea that sort of the girls are being ignored or silenced in this male culture is frankly laughable. Yeah. You propose a solution known as redshirting, which is when it's the idea that boys be held back a year or so before starting kindergarten, say. And this is usually associated with athletics, like, you know, f football parents who want their boys to... Hmm. play play football seriously wait till he's a little bit bigger and start him in kindergarten later but t tell us what you what, what you're thinking uh in terms of your plan here yeah so that's that's the where the term comes from is they wear a red shirt so they get bigger but no there's the other reason to do it which is now at least as common is academic it's for academic reasons because you just feel like your child's not socially or educationally ready um, to start school um, and that's particularly true if they're young for their school year. So we have these inevitably arbitrary cutoff dates where you're eligible for school. Um, and so actually some parents just decide, actually, I don't think my kid is ready. It's very much more often their son than their daughter. And so they do hold them back a year and they go in a year later. And to the extent that we can we can evaluate the impact of that, it does seem to help boys to be a year older. Um, just absolutely a year older in terms of their age uh, than girls, and especially boys from lower income backgrounds. And I think that that speaks to the, what we we're just talking about, which is that if there is this developmental gap um, that's particularly wide in adolescence, then what that means is that if the, if the boys are just absolutely a year older, then it means you've got something closer to a level playing field developmentally. 
where a 15 year old 15 year old girl is probably developmentally in terms of this prefrontal cortex about the same as a 16 year old boy on average and so if you put them if, if you put them in class classes where they're all the same age the girls are almost inevitably on average going to be further ahead because they've got that developmental advantage and so my proposal is just by default put the boys in a year later chronologically and what that will mean is developmentally they're a little bit closer um, to the girls so it would actually level the playing field um it doesn't feel like it would level the playing field but if you look at the brain science it would oh it seems i mean i can imagine being a 10 year old girl and welcoming that proposal very very much but so you're saying this is something that's already happening i didn't i didn't realize this was as common as it well it's um it's become a bit more common um it's a bit difficult to tell right now because the pandemic threw everything out in terms of people starting school and so on too but but yeah and actually what's interesting i did some reporting on this for uh, for a piece i wrote for the atlantic uh, called red shirt the boys and really looked at private schools and in a lot of private schools it's pretty common practice i i got the data for a very well-known a prestigious east coast school um shared their data with me showed with the birth dates of their kids and 30 percent of the boys uh, in the graduating senior class were older than they should have been if they'd come in um at the usual at the quotes correct age as opposed to six percent of the girls so at some point along the way the parents or the tutors or whatever had decided and what i discovered talking to the schools and to advisors and so on is very often see actually the school even suggests it um which is just we should do it and one of them said to me everyone knows there are two cutoff dates for school entry the one for the boys and one for the girls and so it's like an open secret basically and among upper middle class um circles and private schools it's very common practice and obviously not in public schools and certainly not among lower income households Right. And so I'm thinking of many things here, including that I I would think that the inclination of elite parents, at least until relatively recently, would be to just push their kids ahead no matter what. Like in thinking about this before we spoke, I was trying to, you know, I, I can just recall a lot of very ambitious kind of striver sorts of families when I was growing up and the whole thing was get your kid in school sooner. <laughs> but but it's act but it's interesting that this is an elite phenomenon to hold the boys back. It's going the other way now. Yeah, I think Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers uh, had a bit of had an impact on this because he that was actually about relative age um and in, in in all kinds of ways you know I think what he found wasn't wasn't didn't really stand the test of time but he really alerted a lot of people to the advantages of uh, being older in school and so it became became more of a thing and so it's become less, less of a race now and i think more people are, people want their kids to succeed and whether they you know uh whether they succeed at 17 or 18 what you know the exact age at which they get into a great college say if that's the goal is less important to them than that they get in and of course you see that increasing numbers of students now taking gap years anyway um and so like that's the whole year um that people seem quite happy just to to say, oh, yeah, sure, it's a great idea to take a gap year. Well, that's a gap. That's another year out of the labor market, and so, and I think some some of the gap year stuff is actually partly a reflection of the fact that maybe maybe we should just slow down a little bit. Yeah, although the problem is that this is um, a socioeconomic issue because if you are lower income, it's going to be harder for you to to keep your kid out of school for a year. People rely on schools for childcare. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think the only way to operationalize this would be for it to be combined with much more generous provision of childcare, subs subsidized childcare and pre-K and so on. I think that has to, that has to go along with any, any policy like this. Although somebody suggested to me, I mean, I, my proposal suggests that boys start school by default a year later than girls. But one way to achieve that is not actually to start the boys a year later than they currently do, but to start the girls a year earlier. Uh, another way to think about this is just girls are ready sooner, um, and you know they 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 could march all the way through. And in places like Scotland, you finish high school at seventeen, and uh, the girls are killing it there. Uh, and so uh, you know then maybe take a gap year and so on too. But there are different ways one could do it, and I think you'd want to be careful to evaluate it. But I do take the childcare concern quite seriously. That's an argument, of course, more generally about when you start pre K K school. Or whatever, and so I do. I do think any proposal like mine would have to be combined with with, with uh, investment in childcare. Yeah. Well, so speaking of initiatives and attempts to sort of social engineer some of this stuff, you talk about something called the Kalamazoo Promise, and that was uh, just, well, just tell us what that is. This is an initiative in Kalamazoo, Michigan, to basically let anybody go to college who wanted for to. free. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks to a, an anonymous benefactor, there's a scheme there 
it's called the Kalamazoo Promise, as you say, where any graduating senior from uh, high school in Kalamazoo can go to basically any college in the state for free with all tuition paid. It's full tuition. It's paid. You know, it's not like go get all the grants you can get and then we'll pay the rest. It's just, we'll just we just write the check. And so it's one of the most generous promise programs around. It's been around for a, quite a while now. And more importantly, for my purposes, it's also really the only one that's been very well evaluated um, by a team of scholars at the Upjohn Institute. And, and what they find is that it has really positive effects on college completion, um, but only for women. So they find the uh, rates of college completion increase by about 50% among women from Kalamazoo, which is pretty massive impact um which gives you even though it's expensive that's a, the cost benefit analysis on it is just really positive because that's just a gigantic policy impact but the effect on men was zero which means from a cost benefit point of view is actually throwing money away because it was, you know they were getting some boys into college at higher numbers but they weren't finishing and so it had zero it didn't it didn't move the needle and so for me that was quite a sort of you know i remember reading that evaluation and sort of reading it again and uh as one of the one of the moments i think i can remember i can remember the day in my office when i read the paper right it's that kind of paper uh, remember what the weather was like outside because it was like wow Okay, because I just think it's incredibly shocking that the best evaluated free college program didn't improve male college completion at all. Um, that's uh, that's an arresting finding and trying to figure out why. So I ended up going to Kalamazoo and find, you know, finding guys who'd finished college, hadn't finished college, started college and talking to as many of them as I could to try and figure out just why, why it hadn't had this effect. And it had a big impact on me, honestly, to, to, in terms of how we think about policy. And there's a bunch of policies, it turns out, that just have much bigger effects for girls and women than they do for boys and men. Yeah, you, you speak to a young man named Tyrese. You say he's exactly the kind of person that Kalamazoo Promise is intended to help. His father died when he was five. Two of his brothers are in prison. He says some remarkable things in this conversation with you. So he right, he observes four big differences between the women and men around him. First, the motivation. Okay, this is Tyrese. The women are so driven. They know they have to provide for their family. Okay, let's just stop right there for a second before we get to the other. That's an incredible statement. Yes, but it's a true statement, of course, yes. in in the, the world in which he lives in, and so and but it's incredible because it just like it's so it sort of so flips the script right. of what we think of as traditional male and female um, role models. Um, but he absolutely says that he says that yeah, they they know that they want to be mums, but they want to they want to be able to provide for their kids, so they better get a good education. That's literally why my dad went to college. Yeah, because he was going to have to provide for his kids, um, uh, and so he's like, "Yeah, the women, the women know they need to provide." And so, to which a lot of people are like, well, "Well, what about you? Like, aren't you going to have kids?" And so that provider role thing. Well, somebody's having kids with these women. Exactly, but not, but not necessarily feeling that same, right. that same, you know, social pressure. And there was another scheme I looked at as a mentoring scheme. It's actually a community college that, again, had a huge impact for women. And I actually talked to one of the evaluators about this and this was because they didn't really say that much in the paper. And I said, but yeah, but a lot of the women in community college, actually, they, they have kids. Well, they, they have kids while they're there or they go there with kids because they're older and they're very often single mums and stuff. I said, surely that makes it harder for them. Doesn't that mean they're more likely to drop out? And he said, no, it means they're more likely to stay. Um, that actually becoming a mum or having a kid it's just this very powerful motivation for the women to get educated because they want to get as good a job as they can because they want the best for their kids. And so that actual, that, that drive, that sense of kind of, I need to provide for my kids is actually, I think, bearing more strongly on women now than it is on men, which is just a, such a massive cultural change. Yeah. And Ty Tyrese goes on to say, the women don't really need a relationship. They can do it on their own. When stuff gets hard, the guys tend to run away. The girls don't. And he says, women tend to live in the future. Men tend to live in the present. So I I'm thinking about a lot of things when I read this. And I'm thinking about something that we started talking a lot about, I don't know, maybe in the 80s, like the mid to late 80s, which is that as as women became economically empowered, they didn't need husbands for really anything. So they didn't, in order to have a family, they they could do it on their own. And so it was like all the, the women's movement basically handed a whole bunch of new opportunities to women, but they often took the form of taking opportunities or responsibilities or really any kind of 
any kind of motivational, any kind of life purpose away from men. And again, it's really hard to talk about this because you sound like you're blaming feminism, but it's, it's a very real phenomenon. Yeah. That's, I mean, you've put it exactly right, I think. And, and it's, it's the, it's the difficulty of having this conversation, which is to say something can be the result of something, but not the fault of something. Right. And so like the, the central goal of post-war feminism was to make women to ensure that women could become economically independent, especially from the 70s onwards. I mean, people like Gloria Steinem were absolutely explicit about this, as you know, saying we need to make marriage a choice, not a necessity. And Margaret Mead, same thing, right? You need to be economically independent. And so securing economic independence for women was absolutely the motivating force for that wave of feminism. And it's been spectacularly achieved. Even if not complete complete, it's still Pretty good. I mean, we live in a world now where 40% of women earn more than the typical man. And it was only 13% in 1979. I mean, the female wage distribution is just, I mean, it's just been unbelievably powerful change. And 40% of the breadwinners now are women and all the stats that you know. So to that, it's a spectacular success. And by the way, the welfare system has also expanded hugely to help women with children. And so in different so both in terms of wages and wealth, just the whole structure of society now is really... I think come close to achieving that goal. But that does raise a question that the conservatives are raising at the time, which is, but what about the men? What, what, what happens to the guys? And, and the conservatives were saying, this is why you shouldn't do it, right? If you right. do this, it will be a disaster, uh, which was a terrible argument because you needed to do it because there was a social justice reason to do it. Like it was just intrinsically unfair. And it's better to have a world where, we're, where, where, where it can be economically independent. It's a really bad argument to say to women, yeah, we want you to stay economically dependent on men because otherwise they're just going to act out. They're going to behave badly. So would you mind continuing to be second-class citizens just so to keep them in line? That's a really bad argument to make to a woman because um, it's obviously absurd. But the conservatives were right to say we do then need an answer to the question, what are the men for? And for good reason, a lot of feminists didn't take that question seriously, but that question is now being asked real urgency and real force. And I'm afraid that we've only just embarked on the question of answering it because by definition, if you take away what was traditionally the role of the man, which is to be the main provider, you really do ask a hard question as to what he's for. Yeah, I know. I remember when Maureen Dowd's book, Are Men Necessary, came out. I think yes. it was probably like 2005 or so. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to be great. This is exactly what I think about all the time. And it had nothing to do with it. I don't even remember what she was saying, but it, was, uh, it, it wasn't really a, a serious no. inquiry into this. No, it was quite fun. I mean, she said at the beginning of it, she says she asked him, her mum says, well, of course they are, you know, for heavy list, heavy lifting and procreation. Um, and so it's kind of funny. But but yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that the, the cultural question, I say at one point in the book, we need anthropologists, not economists. And the reason I say that is because I think that the, the perhaps the biggest shock of all uh, that we've experienced in recent decades is actually this one. It's the fundamental refashioning of the economic relationship between men and women in a way that's arguably almost unprecedented um, in human history. And so the idea that that's not going to have some knock-on effects, there aren't going to be some byproducts to that is absurd. And it's actually, it's irresponsible not to reckon that massive social changes don't somehow have some downstream effects. And we should just deal with those effects. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have had the change. It just means that we should recognize some of the consequences of the change for other groups. Yeah. And you talk about a, a Pew Research poll from 2017 that was asking people, what is the meaning of life? Oh, yeah. And uh, poll, they asked, uh, they said, what about your life do you currently find meaningful, fulfilling, or satisfying? What keeps you going and why? And they, you, you write, one of their most striking discoveries was that women find more meaning in their lives from more sources than men. So. You say a wifeless, wifeless men are a mess and husbandless women are in some cases better off than women with husbands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Two thirds of divorces are initiated by women and men, men are more likely to say that marriage is important to them than, than women now. And so that's, you know, I think, you know, even Gloria Steinem is married now. She got, she just got married. She got married again? Wait, she's did got I married. This? To, she got married to Christian Bale's father. Yeah, but didn't he? Wait, he's not the Does one she, who died. They already split up. I, I, Wait really? a second. One of them died. 
Oh okay. my gosh. Well, I don't know if we're going to keep this. Um, got to get your uh, steinomology straight. I know. Well, I'm Googling it. You'll be able to. I don't know if you're going to keep this bit, but if you are, then uh, people are going to hear me Googling at marriage because no, I'm that's so okay. Out of if she she's in her 80s, so if she just got married, then uh, hats off to her. Okay. Yeah. They, well, no, no, no. You're right. They got married. No, no. You're right. It was ages ago. Um, oh I my know. God, Time yeah, flies. Right. It does seem. Yeah. Didn't but- she get married? Again? <laughs> Maybe so. All right. anyway, our, our, okay. our listeners will let us know. But so this is like this hypergamy thing. So this, again, is one of those topics that I think is fascinating and has to be talked about in, in a way that is different from like the manosphere discourse. So one of the things that feminism did was it, it economically empowered women. So you, you don't have to have a man in order to survive. And what that did was result in a very small percentage of high status men competing for all the women. And then you have these men who are, you know, not you know, high value, quote unquote, that's just the sort of term, term of art, sort of artless term of art. You have a whole bunch of men who before the women's movement would have found partners because women needed to be with somebody. Maybe this guy wasn't the best looking, the most educated, the highest earner, but like he was a a decent guy. And if you want to have a family, you're going to partner with them. Maybe you meet him at church, whatever. But that doesn't exist anymore. So you have a whole lot of people who are not partnered and men are not doing as well without a partner as women. Yeah. So I think that's right. It's particularly men who are less economically powerful, who are more likely in that position, as you say. It's not upper middle class men by and large. Actually, marriage rates are They can write rate. their ticket, yeah. Yeah, that's still true. I mean, of course, you know, we're not in a world yet where polygamy has reemerged, which would make the problem even worse. Although Utah did just decriminalize polygamy. And then, of course, Elon Musk has his own sort of sort of billionaire version of it. But we don't yet, we're not yet in this. I mean, most human societies have been like that. And so they've had the so what Joe Henrik, the uh, evolutionary psychologist, calls the um, the math problem of surplus men, has been a has been a historic issue for societies because you have had all these men that are not reproducing and not partnered. What do you do with them? Because they are, they're often quite violent. They're taking all kinds of risks, desperate attempt to move up the ladder. And now we have a slightly different situation where it, which is not because of it's not because the uh, high value men. I sort of have 14 wives, it's because the women, even if they're lower down, the economic pecking order just don't need the man, right? So it's not that they're the, it, it, you know, it's not the woman who's the 14th wife of Jeff Bezos that's the issue. It's the, it's the woman who is, that's a horrible thought. Um, uh, no offense to Jeff or anybody else, but um, just like, you can, that's absolutely world. Maybe he can marry Gloria Steinem. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're right. By the way, I looked it up, and you're right. It was 2000 when she got married, and 2004 when he died, unfortunately. Um, um, but she said at the time it was because marriage. You know, we got to a point where we we got to a point where marriage was no longer this patriarchal institution. Well, she said we are becoming the men we wanted to marry, or something like yes. that. Yes. She did, Which, yeah. That was a kind God, of let's try to parse that. One. Well, but also that was a, there was a certain like. What she was she was kind of warning against is like let's not let's not give up on this fact that there are still some differences um, between us as well. I think that even she was able to recognize that and glory a bit in that. But you're right. So what happens is you get these men who, for whatever reason, are kind of economically less necessary. There was this line from uh, from a chapter like "Why Men Resist" by a guy called Martin Good, and it was what we're seeing is the declining marginal utility of men. And it's a kind of brutal phrase because it's true. And so if you have these guns who are just much less needed, much less useful, what happens to them? And the trouble is that because they're not as we're not as good generally as men at kind of maintaining social relationships, too much of our identity is still tied up with work and breadwinning and so on, that actually absent that role that we used to fill or that our fathers filled at least, we do become quite rudderless, quite lost, end up quite drifting, imp- improvising. I, the way I think about this is that you know, we had a script for masculinity and femininity. We tore them up for good reason. And now we have a new script for femininity, which is get educated, get ahead. The, the women that Tyrese is talking about become economically independent, lots of empowerment, you know, you go girl, et cetera. And it's a fabulous script, much better than the script that my mum had. 
and we took up tore up the old mail script the one my dad had which is you know you're gonna have to look after family when my dad was made unemployed like he had to go and get another job right <laughs> um that that was how the family was gonna survive so we've torn that script up too but what's the new mail script and so without a script, you've got these guys who are effectively in the middle of a stage having had the script torn up in front of them. They're, they're doing what you have to do in that situation, which is improvise. And they're making it up as they go along. And that creates all kinds of haphazardness and difficulty. And, and I think that's really what we're seeing now. What we're not seeing is what the conservatives warned against, which is kind of marauding bands of sort of Mad Max style men right who are going to just destroy society oh no well that wouldn't that would require going out of your house so it would require leaving the basement yeah but they really worried about that they worried about that and they weren't wrong in some ways to worry about that because human history would suggest that lots of unattached men is not a great thing for peace and society but actually what's happened is simultaneously with these changes we've seen a dramatic drop in violent crime Oh, because they can't even be bothered. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. But that's so much better, isn't it? I mean, if you get, if you know, what would you, what would you rather have? The men sort of in their basement, looking at porn, smoking weed, and playing video games, or marauding around, pillaging, and you know, raping? And obviously, we'd prefer the former. And so, to that extent, I sometimes, I sometimes think that this whole debate about screens, video games, and porn in particular, gets it the wrong way around. Some people suggest that they're the problem. I sometimes wonder if they hadn't turned out to be something of a solution. Or or at least the lesser evil. The lesser of two evils, yeah. Somewhere somewhere for men to go, even when they've been benched by society. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with Nicholas Eberstadt. He is the author of a book called Men With That Work that came out in 2016, but he's just issued an update that gives some pretty shocking numbers about a um, pretty wide swath of men that simply doesn't work at all. Like we have a huge number of men who, mostly young men who are not looking for work. They don't want to work. A lot of them are on disability. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's pretty remarkable. Can you just talk a little bit about what these guys are doing? You've had a lot of conversations with these men. What kinds of things are you hearing from them? Yeah, so I mean, you're and you're right to point people to, to Nick's new work on this because it's very important. I think when we look at labor force participation and the people who are not in the labor force, they're not working, to ask what they're doing. And we've seen this decline in lab, male labor force participation. But if that was because they were at home raising the kids, we'd probably feel one way about it, right? We'd say great, <laughs> um, but they're not. We don't really know what they're doing in many cases. As you say, a lot of them are on disability. Their sources of income are uncertain in many cases. I remember I looked at this myself and I'm like, where are they getting money from? Where are they living? Uh, and it's kind of hard to figure it out. And so what you hear when you when you talk to young men or you, you, you know some of them is that quite often they are, you know, they might be bouncing between friends' houses. Sometimes they're back living with other mem- fam- family members. Young men are more likely to be living at home with their parents than, than young women are. Sometimes they're trying like a new business with a friend. You know, there's, you know, there's an attempt to sort of do something entrepreneurial. So do it at the risk of stereotyping, it's like my friend's got an idea for an app. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's going to involve When you hear a young weed. man say that, you just yeah. Think, one of the guys I interviewed in Kalamazoo, so I stopped out of college because we had this great idea for an app. <laughs> How many of these ideas came about while stoned too? That's, all, exactly. that's a key factor. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a sort of, you know, there's sometimes an attempt to – uh, but take a bit of a shortcut, right? It's just like, do I need to slog through four years of a degree when I can just go get rich? And and unfortunately, of course, then there's all the examples of the guys who dropped out of college and became super rich. And and then you've got this whole horrible Andrew Tate phenomenon now of like, yeah, just get rich. Yeah, it's no problem. Forget all that stuff. And and that can be quite attractive to men who are, honestly don't know what the hell to do. And so they kind of, I would say there's a bit of drift, honestly. I don't think there's much acting out going on. Um, we just discussed that. There's more checking out going on and, and improvisation. And a lot of these guys, if they have kids, they're trying to stay in their kids' lives, so that's difficult. They're trying to make a go of it at work, but they keep changing their mind about what they're doing. It's just a bit unanchored, I would say, is the way I, I, I would describe uh, a lot of the men. And without, that, without some kind of anchor, it's hard to know what to do. And we've already talked about the fact that for a lot of women, the kids are the anchor. Right. But- but and for a lot of men in the past, it was the wife and kids who were the anchor. Uh, but what's the anchor now? When the wife can have the kids without you because she's not a wife anymore, or she's divorcing you, then where's your anchor? And that's so we've we've unanchored masculinity without re-anchoring it. Yeah, and I don't know how much you you talk to people about this, but we also have like a court system that 
favors women in custody arrangements. There's a lot of guys out there who've lost custody of their kids fairly or unfairly, often unfairly. So they don't even have the opportunity to be a, a provider or they, you know, or, or they have to pay some, they have to pay child support, but they don't see their kids. It's, this is, this is something that if you talk about it, you will be called a men's rights activist, but it needs to be talked about. I do talk about it. I mean, I, I, look, if I'm not willing to take, you know, run a few risks of being called a men's rights activist, then I would never have written the book because, you know, the men's rights activists aren't wrong about everything. Uh, and I think sort of just to assume that a group of people um, are wrong about everything is just a bad way to proceed in the world. I'm, I'm actually John Stuart Mill's biographer. And one of his great lines was, all of us hold hold things in our heads we, we think to be true that are actually false. We just don't know which ones they are yet. And part of the point is to find out what we're wrong about and what we're right about. And so one of the things I think that, uh, and I'm glad you asked this question because I was in, very influenced by the work of Catherine Eden writing this book. Um, and she's done a lot of work on the particular issue faced by unmarried men. So if you're married, actually the court system deals pretty well with you now. Right, there's been recent years to make the court system much fairer to fathers. So mostly joint custody, married uh, men who become divorced, like now, now getting about a third of the time with kids. It's just dramatically changed in a matter of a few, few decades. And the nice thing about the marriage and divorce system is that it combines treatment of uh, issues around access and financial support. It does it all in one go. So it treats fathers not just as sources of money, but as fathers. And it presumes paternity. It presumes you're the dad if you're married as well. And, but for unmarried fathers, and bear in mind, 40% of kids are born outside marriage now. And most kids born to a mum without a college education are outside marriage. Um, that's a completely different world. So in every US state now, a child born to an unmarried mother, um, the legal presumption is she gets full sole custody. The father has to prove paternity because the legal system doesn't presume he's, you know, has to prove he's the father, right? If you're married, so, and you can see why this is the case. I'm not saying it's crazy, but he has, to go to, he has to prove paternity. Then he has to go to court to get access to the child. Meanwhile, the child support system comes at him for his money completely separately. There is no relationship at all between his status as you need to keep paying money and his role as a father. So what's happened is that our legal system has completely failed to catch up with the fact that so many kids are now born outside marriage. And so unmarried fathers get treated particularly badly. So that if that's a men's rights issue, then okay. Yeah. What kinds of things did men say about women when you were talking with them? What did they complain about when it came to women? I actually don't, I didn't hear that many complaints. Um, some guys you sort of admiration um, and for how well kind of women were doing. Obviously, you get to some areas, you talk to some angrier young men, um, and you know, at the worst, they can kind of metastasize into these kind of incel men going their own way. Online stuff, which is a small minority of, of boys in particular. But I would say the complaint that I, that I most often heard was an unwillingness on the part of women to recognize the difficulties that men were having. Honestly, it was a bit of a lack of empathy. And, and it was just, and so I think it's because for quite a lot of, you know, women still, quite rightly, still see there are issues still facing some women that they just don't have much space or sympathy for men. Um, and, at, at, and at worst, they just see them as whiners, right? Which is not something that men ever want to feel. And so what I really felt, I'm mean, actually, I remember like, this is anecdotal, but I remember walking along the corridor of, you know, my youngest son's high school and upper middle class affluent kid. He's not the boys we should be most worried about. And we were looking along, and as we were walking along the wall, we saw these posters for like scholarship night for girls, women's colleges. There was a girls on the run thing. There was a whole bunch of stuff. We're looking at, we're looking at all this stuff. And he, and he was looking at it kind of ruefully and saying, yeah, the thing is, I looked at the stats the other day and, you know, twice as many girls from this school go on to Ivy League colleges, get highest AP scores. And, uh, you know, they're actually smoking it in the classroom. Uh, they're doing much better than us. And then I look at that. <laughs> it's like, um, and, and, and there is this kind of danger, I think, that they just don't feel heard. And so it's not so much aimed at women, but it's more generally as a lot of these young men just feel like they, they don't, 
if they say they're struggling in various ways and they don't know what to do, that that will be really bad for them because they're trapped in the center of men are supposed to know exactly what to do and be agentic and assertive. And so they'll be kind of written off. But get, Or they'll get, they'll get just laughed out of court by women who just say, are you kidding? We live in a patriarchy. How dare you complain? And so that was really the main thing that kind of came through was a lack of compassion, I would say. Um, for some of the difficulties that men are having. And I think that's true writ large, honestly, and one of the ways in which we're failing. Yeah, so I've been very critical of the sort of online vernacular, the blogosphere, talking about toxic masculinity or all these memes, just sort of putting down men. I, I drink male tears. Yes, men are garbage, that kind of thing. And so my big thing about that is that you're actually, you know, you say that it's okay to be this way because you're punching up to power. Sorry, you're presuming that men are automatically in a more powerful position than women, so you can make fun of them and insult them with impunity because you're you're punching up. I always say they don't have more power than you until you do that. So you're actually handing them power that they don't have, and then first of all, making yourself look foolish by you know banging your <laughs> banging your fists on the table at men. But I would imagine that it gets really tiresome. I mean, I had a conversation on my other podcast uh, with with a guest a few weeks ago, and she was a woman in her 20s. And she was talking about the dating economy and just the way a lot of these young guys, they see women online making fun of men that they've been on dates with. There's all sorts of memes about, you know, this guy's a loser or, you know, you wouldn't believe what this guy did. And they don't even want to get involved in it because they know they're going to be ridiculed and it's it's just culturally sanctioned it's, it's allowable yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and it's sort of the version of the sort of hapless sitcom dad you know you need you, you know that the, just the the allowance for that in a way that just would not be sanctioned elsewhere and i agree that that's the sort of punching up excuse is is obviously use, true in some cases where they are very powerful men and you can do it but it's not true generally and i think it's particularly you know, I'll, I'll risk saying that it's particularly difficult when it is white, college-educated, professional women doing it because they are, you know, in many ways so much more powerful than kind of arguably any group of women in human history. And, you know, white women, for example, earn just earn way more than black men do. And college-educated white women just earning so much more than both working-class men and working-class women that it that is – when you say you're punching up, well, you need to be really careful about that because like if you're a very high status, very well-educated white woman, then there aren't that many people above you. And there's a whole hell of a lot of people below you, including every working class man in the country. So just be super careful um, about how you talk about those men generally. And even if those men are in your circle as well, I just think there's a there's just a basic human need to have a bit of compassion, a bit of empathy. It's not to say that people can't behave badly and you shouldn't call them out on either side, but but I, I do fear that this is kind of like the one area of, of, of victim blaming or trashing that's still sort of acceptable even on the political left. And I got to tell you that having raised three boys and being around, just, you know, it, you hear some quite heartbreaking stories actually about how a lot of these men end up feeling about themselves. And, and then if they decide just to opt out, just say, okay, I'm not going to do it. And I'm just going to, uh, I will go to the basement, right? Because it's pretty, it feels pretty hostile to me out there. So I'm going to go to the basement. Then we blame them for that. Uh, and we just say, oh, you're a bunch of losers. All you want to do is smoke around, you know, smoke weed and do it. So, and so what happens is that there's a lot of pointing fingers, but not very many helping hands. And right now we need a lot more helping hands, especially for some of these boys, because they, a lot of them, they feel like they can't win. As a line I quote from Peggy Orenstein's work on boys and sex, where she asked all these young men, What's good about being a man? And none of them could answer. Oh, they didn't answer. And one of them said, yeah. A couple of them said, well, it's interesting. You hear a lot about what's wrong. And, and even like someone, one of my kids, uh, like social skills training thing, it was about gender and it was about how to be in the world. But what it basically boiled down to was teaching the boys not to be beastly towards girls, right? Uh, and that's good. That's an important lesson that every man needs to learn especially if they're going to get anywhere in the world, <laughs> including romantically. But it was, it was literally just that. It was entirely negative. And so to use the, some of the language from social science about it, it was all deficit-based. It was all about how can we stop, how can we take the bad bits of, out of you? How can we stop you doing the bad things you might do? It was a deficit model. 
um, of what's, you know, how do we stop men sexually harassing women, for example? That's obviously a hugely important task. But if that's the only task, then what you're doing is you're sending a message to the men, which is like, the only bit of you are worried about is the bad bit. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, and there's just so much of that going on that it's no wonder then that none of the boys could give Peggy a good answer as to, is there anything good about being a boy or a man? And I think if we can't have good answers to that question, then we're in a lot of cultural difficulty. Yeah, I've also, have you gotten the sense that even taking on this subject is a little uncouth for a man? Is there something unmanly about looking at what's wrong with men? Because I've noticed this thing where I see a lot of women interested in this subject almost more than men or they, or men will say like, Oh, I, I, that's just bullshit. You know, and, and it's a lot of elite men who are journalists and pundit class and that sort of thing. So these are already the highest status men. But I think that I have this theory that the people who are almost most interested in this are women who are maybe in the dating market. They they didn't get married early. They've had to deal with men on any number of levels, and they really feel the effects of this in a way that, like a lot of men themselves, don't. If they are high status, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly if they're high status. I mean, if you're a high status male, particularly if you're in more sort of the, I guess, liberal, you know, circles, then the thing to do is just be an, you know, just be a hardcore feminist, uh, double down. On that and send that and send that signal very clearly as you continue to be incredibly professionally powerful yourself too and so there's not you know, arguably there's not much to gain um from taking on these issues from perspective of like if you want to win the admiration of your liberal feminist colleagues then you don't write a book like this um although that said i think a number I of think them that's have, changing <laughs> yeah i think it's changing and i've been i mean michelle goldberg had a piece in the times about the book which although she disagreed with me she did so substantively and respectfully and said look there's something here. Like he's right. Like we, it's you know, he's crazy to worry about this. He's you know, and so I thought, well, that's great. I mean, that's that shows. So it's like, and I could do it with a Brookings scholar, and I have lots of boring charts and you know the right tone and all that, which is not to dismiss all that. I think it's hugely important. But I think the bigger problem, in some ways, is the sense that there is that even acknowledging some of these male struggles is to somehow be emasculating the men themselves or yourself right exactly the, yeah yeah it's i think that's what you're speaking to is there's this danger i think i'm getting a bit of that actually it's interesting just online and a bit through emails and stuff which is like how dare you say there's nothing wrong with us we're great stop you know stop saying something wrong with us i'm and I, of course i'm i'm trying to say the opposite i'm trying to say there's nothing wrong with you uh, i'm against the toxic masculinity stuff i'm saying there's a bunch of structural changes happening around you that are really difficult and that maybe we should help you with. But there is some resistance to the idea that men might even need help. And weirdly, that comes from these different angles. One from, I guess, from sort of more straightforward feminists, which is like, are you kidding me? Really? Men need help? Boys need help? Where have you been for the last 10,000 years? I get that, but I think it's wrong. But you also get it from a bunch of men, especially more on the right, which is like, how dare you suggest we need help? Um, and so I, I think in it is it is difficult for the different reasons to even kind of acknowledge some of these difficulties men are having without in some way you know being seen to be to be speaking down to them so the question is how can we be empathetic to men without appearing to somehow emasculate the men and i think that is a difficult task but uh, but it is precisely the task in front of us yeah it's a tr it's a tricky needle to thread because you also don't want to beat up on feminism yeah, but you also, that's right, you don't, that's the last thing, you definitely don't want to do that. But you also, it's interesting that women do write about it. In some ways, perhaps it's, perhaps it's seen as easier for women to write about it because. Well, we have a, we have a protection because we're not just, it's, it, we're not writing out of purely self-interest if we're taking it on. Yes. It, it, exactly. So I think it gives a little bit of cover. Um, and, you know, and as, I'm, I'm, no, I'm a middle class white man. So, like, on pretty much all the dimensions. Yeah, really. That's very brave. It's, it's st stunning and brave of you. <laughs> <laughs> when people say that, you think, shit. <laughs> no, no. Um, well, we have to wrap up, but I want to ask you so you're, you have three sons. Are they now in their early 20s or in late teens? How old are they? They're all in their 20s. My eldest is 26. And then 22 and 20. Okay. So I don't know if you've if in your 50s, I suppose. but Yes. I, okay. So are you glad that you grew up in the era that you did as opposed to the era that your sons grew up in? Yes and no, if I can do both. Yes, in the sense that I, 
I do think that the the challenges around masculinity uh, were just not as great then. You just like, you could just do some of the shit that <laughs> the boys do, and it wouldn't necessarily. Yeah, be, you uh, talked about running in front of trains yeah. or something. Yeah, we'd run in front of Are trucks, you serious? Yeah. Trucks, yeah. trucks, yeah, trucks, yeah, 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 and you know, and it, and it would like, you get a bit of eye rolling and whatever, but it wouldn't be immediately pathologized, uh, and so I do think it was more freedom in a in a sense. There wasn't that same sense of angst around it. Also, an era of like complete gender parity in education. Like I was of a generation where like it was about became about fifty fifty in college by the time I was there, and it's like when I, it was it was that brief moment where you know women had caught up but not overtaken and so i grew up in an education system where it was kind of just presumed that the girls and the boys were going to do about as well and go on to college at the same rates and and that was great there was no sort of fraughtness around it but i would also say no because i also grew up in you know this is a, this is, shows you the complexity of these issues around masculinity i was also i was also physically afraid quite a lot of the time I mean, physical bullying was a real thing and and that's not been true for my sons they are in a world now that's much physically safer but I think is just more sensitive to the challenges that um, students can have and people can have in students. So I think there's more, you know, there's definitely been a growth in awareness and uh, particularly with some of these mental health issues. So I think like it's always true that progress is uneven and it's patchy. And so I welcome some of the changes we've seen that have led to, for example, much less physical bullying, usually male on male in schools uh, circumstances but but i but I, I i regret the fact that one of the results of that has been to suggest that the kind of almost anything that that boys do differently to girls is definitionally toxic um and that has been a bit of a problem for some of my sons too so i think on balance it's difficult to say isn't it because you're always going to look at your own experience and probably if you're an optimist like i am be kind of glad the way that it worked out um so i think my summary would be that it was uh less sort of fraught in in some ways but but more fit but more scary uh but now it's a little bit more complicated i don't and en- i don't i will say i don't envy my son some of the complexities of like the modern dating market i do think that's become quite quite a bit more complicated and they're doing well but but yeah i think the whole world of of dating and and i think kind of knowing like when i was growing up this is probably a bit too personal now i was like the whole idea of like you know, dating and romance and so on was just like you would sometimes girls would ask you out, but usually you'd ask them out. That was kind of the expected thing. And yeah, and you had to call and talk to their parents when their parents answered parents, the phone. Parents, you had to pick them up and the parents would look you over and the dad would have like, one girlfriend whose father had a shotgun and it's which no one in Britain had. And oh my you, gosh. Had to, you had to dress up, you had to shower, you had to, you know, you had to ask girls <laughs> out and you had to be, and you had to, you had to be rejected multiple times. It was difficult. It was a, but it was kind of, but you kind of knew what the rules of the game were, and you you weren't constantly fearful that just by asking a girl out or something, something you would be seen as a creep, right? As long as you knew how to take no, take no for an answer, then it was okay. Whereas now, I just speak to a lot of young men who are like, "No, I just I don't know what to do," and that sense of paralysis, particularly around areas of kind of romance and dating. I think that is a new thing, and I, and that's that's definitely something I'm glad to have avoided. Yeah, I think as we're in a generational sweet spot with that too, because we were post women's movement for the most part, but pre dating apps and pre toxic everything. Yeah, that was you're right. That was the heyday, wasn't it? That was that was when that was the heyday when we used we knew we were all, we knew we were equal, um, but we also didn't you know we didn't mind behaving in certain different. We, we could sort of do the dance, right? There was there's a, there was a sort of there's a choreography to it that that is okay and that doesn't require inequality to work and i think we we're now in a situation where we think any kind of choreography that that has different roles for men and women even at a sort of you know modest level uh is somehow seen as kind of difficult um whereas you know one, one of my one of my sons sort of took his girlfriend away for a few days right and um uh, and he wanted to really treat her and so they he, he he really worked hard he does food delivery and stuff and so they stayed at the courtyard by marriott out somewhere i can't really like where where and uh, he just blew all his money on like two nights in this what for them was just the swankiest hotel so romantic yeah i know he loved that and i thought well i've done something right that he realizes that that is really it's quite you know that is really nice right hasn't i haven't spoiled him so sufficiently he doesn't kind of realize that but also and i was like and why did she think she, she loved it he took her away and he got his credit card out and you know all that it was great and then of course she's paying for a bunch of other stuff right <laughs> she's actually got more money than him but but it, but it, 
and I just thought that's lovely, you know, uh, that that can still happen. And for nobody to think that it means he thinks less of her or she's just, it's okay. And I'm really hoping that we get to a world where we can just breathe a bit more easily around some of these differences because we have achieved so much more equality. But we're not there yet, but I see some hopeful signs, at least in my own kids, that it's like, yeah, you know, they roll their eyes at some of the culture war stuff. And a lot of the girls they know, they, you know, they're okay with they're okay with a guy asking them out, right? They don't they don't immediately report. <laughs> well, well done. It sounds like you've done a great job as a father and well done on this book. It's it's really excellent and you you execute it just incredibly skillfully and I hope everybody reads it and I hope everybody talks about it in productive ways and um maybe you'll you'll come back and talk with me again sometime. Anytime. That was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. That was my conversation with Richard Reeves. He is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. And in addition to the book we were just talking about, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It, the author of two books, John Stuart Mill, Victorian Firebrand, and Dream Quarters. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. Now on Substack at megandelm.substack.com. That is the place where you can support the podcast. You become a paid subscriber. You get lots of perks. In addition to being able to leave comments, you can, if you join at the founding member level, come to Hangouts. We're having Zoom Hangouts once a month. We get together and talk about recent episodes of the podcast. The next one will be Sunday, November 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I will be there. I'm always there. What else can you do? You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Also check out my new podcast, pretty new, with Sarah Hader, A Special Place in Hell. That's also on Substack. I think every there's nothing that's not on Substack these days. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.